Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Secretary of State Blinken's meeting today with Prime Minister Netanyahu, who leads the most far-right government in Israel's history, and like former President Trump, who is running for the presidency to stay out of jail, Netanyahu is using the power of his office to strip Israel's Supreme Court of its authority so that he can be in charge of the law and stay out of jail. Joining us is Lara Friedman, the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Previously, she was the director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now, and before that, she was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with particular focus on the Israeli-Arab conflict, settlements, and Jerusalem, and the role of the U.S. Congress. Then we'll look into whether the recently arrested top FBI counterintelligence agent in New York, who was at the center of two contradictory but highly consequential events that tipped the scale in 2016 to elect Donald Trump, was doing so at the behest of his Russian paymasters. Did Charlie McGonigal influence Comey to go public with a bogus story about Hillary Clinton's emails on Wiener's laptop while dismissing the real evidence of Russian interference to the New York Times, who just a week before the 2016 election, citing intelligence sources, gave Trump a clean bill of health in an October 31st article titled Investigating Donald Trump, FBI Sees No Clear Link to Russia. Joining us is Will Bunch, an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who blogs at attitude.com. He is the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream, and most recently, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. We will discuss his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer, the New York Times should tell readers whether it helped crooked FBI agents get Trump elected in 2016. Then finally, following the disbanding of the Memphis Police's Scorpion Unit, we'll look into whether getting rid of a few bad apples addresses the systemic problems from so-called elite police units and the militarization of American policing. Joining us is Stuart Schrader. Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration and Citizenship and an Associate Research Professor of Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University. His research focuses on security, policing and counterinsurgency, the entwinement of foreign and domestic policy and urbanization. And he is the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. And joining us now is Lara Friedman, who is the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, previously was the director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now, and before that she was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, settlements, and Jerusalem, and the role of the U.S. Congress. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lara Friedman. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Lara. And what is the takeaway from the meeting between Secretary of State Blinken and Netanyahu today, which comes at a very, very tense moment in Israel with with the Palestinian having killed some Israeli worshippers and retaliation by the Israelis, and the general and overall 
concern expressed by hundreds of thousands of Israelis who have demonstrated that Israeli democracy itself is under threat by Netanyahu, who is bent upon weakening the judiciary in order to take charge so that he doesn't go to jail. So let's start with the latter. Is there a real threat underway to Israeli democracy? So uh, there's a lot, a lot packed into that question. Um, so, so starting with the last piece, which is, as you said, the threat to Israeli democracy, I, th- I think it's important to recognize that when we're talking about threatening Israeli democracy, you know, sort of preserving a status quo ante, that status quo ante is is not actually democratic in the sense that it provides equal rights, equal status under law for everyone, rule of law for everyone that are under the, the authority of the sovereign government. Um, Israeli democracy, to the extent that it is celebrated as democracy, is really democracy for its Jewish Israeli citizens. It is something slightly less than democracy for its non-Jewish Arab Israeli citizens. We see this with things like the nation state law, which makes it a matter of explicit policy that Israel is a nation of the Jewish people and and creates a a quasi-secondary status there um, for its Arab citizens. And then you have under Israel's sovereign control, and we mean complete control, you've got Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem who are not citizens, who do not enjoy democratic rights. They enjoy limited privileges as residents of the town that they live in, where they were born, where their families have lived maybe for hundreds of years, but they are treated as effectively residents who move there and have privileges but not rights. And then you've got Palestinians living, Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, who enjoy no rights and live under, in the West Bank, a combination of Israeli military law, old British mandate laws, uh, Jordanian emergency law, and then separate from that in the little Bantu stands where the PA, the Palestinian Authority, is in control, they have a separate set of laws on top of them there. So it's not really democracy in all of the areas. But setting that aside, um, there is no question that the new Israeli government came in with an explicit purpose of of remaking the Israeli judiciary in order to eliminate what are the final weak um, obstacles to to the far right doing whatever it wants. Um, I think it's important to recognize for people who are mainly viewing this, you, know, you look at the big crowds that are coming out of, of Israelis to protest who are seeing this as a threat to them and to you know women and LGBTQ rights and all of that. The, the genesis of this threat to change the Israeli judiciary comes from those who support the what we call the greater Israel enterprise. That means you know building settlements and taking land in the West Bank. The 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 impetus for this desire to take power away from the High Court was years and years of frustration that the High Court of Justice provides even limited meek protections for Palestinians in the West Bank's bank against the aspirations and actions of the Israeli far right, up to and including what has frustrated them the most, which was the Israeli high court ruling that they couldn't simply suspend the rule of law and declare Palestinian private land to now be Israeli Jewish land because settlers built on it and now want to have their feda accompli declared legal. So that threat is very real. It has um, strong support, I think, within Bibi's coalition. 
Um, it clearly has has raised passions in the Israeli public. Although, again, if you listen to the tenor of the, the protests, the protests are mainly about the equities of Jewish Israelis, not caring particularly about the equities that are actually the most at risk, which are the equities of Palestinians who do not vote and who live with no rights. Um, you know, and how how far this goes, you know, the if you pay attention on social media, the far right in response to the hundreds of tens of thousands or 100,000 people coming out to protest, their reaction has been kind of like, fantastic, you guys waste your time protesting. We have been elected democratically and we are going to change the laws. We're getting the work done. So fine, waste your time in the streets. If the idea was that Secretary Blinken going out there was going to lay down some significant marker laying out U.S. objections to this. Um, I, I guess you view, you can, if you're looking to be an optimist, you can say, well, at least he mentioned it. And it, it came up in the press conference that he'd mentioned, you know, concern for Israel's democracy. And, and he made a statement about um, something suggesting that Netanyahu would be strongest if he seeks consensus as he moves forward with reforming the judiciary. So for folks who are looking for the glass half full, they can say, well, at least the U.S., made a point and mentioned this, which maybe one would have expected them not to do because they don't want friction. On the other hand, if you listen to the press conference in full, it is essentially a long poem of love for and support and, and confidence in Israel's democracy. It doesn't suggest any U.S. willingness to actually object, saying you should seek consensus. He means, he's clear, this is consensus with the Israeli people who are protesting now, which has nothing to do with the Palestinians. I mean, I, I suspect you may be able to find consensus in the Israeli body politic of reforming the judiciary. So the only people who end up completely screwed by the reform of the judicial system are Palestinians. And you could probably get decent consensus around that. Would that be satisfying? Or would the U.S. say anything about that? I, I don't know. I, I did not see anything in the press conference that suggested the U.S. was 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 drawing any sort of red line, which is probably better since the U.S. has clearly no intention of defending any red line it might draw. But in terms of the so-called judicial reforms, there's no question that, that Netanyahu has, has a real dog in this fight, just as Trump does in terms of the Department of Justice inquiries into him. Are the Israeli people aware that maybe their new leader is trying to corral and control judiciary for personal reasons, which is, I don't want to go to jail? Look, I, I think that's certainly part of it, and I don't think Israelis are, are in any way um, not understanding that. But the fact is, he they, this this is the result of an election. Israel just had, it's you know, they, Israel's had election after election after election. If this was really, if it was really a red line for enough Israelis that, that Netanyahu should not be able to come back in power and try to change the laws to suit his own interests, then then we wouldn't have had the result that we had in this last election, which was, you know, it it, it has been a, there, there is a shift in the Israeli body politic. And it's not that dissimilar to, or it's not necessarily dissimilar to what we see in the U.S., where, you know, we see exactly, you, you see, you can watch the January 6th hearings and you can see all of the stuff that's come out since the end of the Trump uh, actually, the end of the Trump era, since the end of Trump's you know, first time in office, we don't know if there's going to be a second. And that isn't necessarily going to prevent him from getting a significant number of votes and potentially coming back. 
The bottom line, though, is his coalition, the kind of changes they're seeking to make in the judicial system, which is basically to take power away from the Israeli High Court of Justice and make Israel's justice system completely politicized and wholly under the control of the government and the coalition in power, which is it, it, it's a, it's in a country that doesn't have a constitution um, and doesn't have any sort of um, you know, th th there's nothing in the Israeli in the Israeli political system that lays down clear rules on things like human rights, civil rights. All of this is up to legislation. Legislation then it has always the the last court of resort has been the Israeli High Court, which has a quasi constitutional role there in defining what what is allowable. It's taking that away, and that should that you know, There's a reason why so many people are out in the streets right now because they recognize. If you try to imagine what that would look like, you know, in the U.S., I mean, our, there may be trouble with the problems with the Supreme Court and with the judicial system. But fundamentally, we do have a constitution, at least. Um, you, you take this away in Israel and anything can be legislated. And again, the number one goal of the people in Bibi's coalition is to legislate away any restraint on what Israel can do in the West Bank. That is the number one issue which is important because that is the, that the, what restraint in the West Bank is probably the one thing that the majority of people in the streets don't want to talk about, much like we've seen with social protests before. Don't mess up our excellent, you know, progressive social protests by bringing in your Palestine issue. But the whole reason, the main reason behind what we're seeing today is the Palestine issue. It is about clamping down and shutting down. And arguably, from the perspective of some people in Bibi's coalition, it is about once and for all ending the Palestinian issue, sort of finishing what was started in 1948 that should have been finished. We're going to finish it now. And that will be that. So given the fact that it was a bit of a love fest, which is de rigueur in terms of uh, U.S. presidential and vice presidential and secretary of state visits to Israel, that's a prerequisite. And of course, when you talk about Israel being the only democracy in the, in the neighborhood and what a, a great virtue that is, and that's been often argued by supporters of Israel. So that's my question, Lara. How is this going to play with Israeli support here in the United States? Um, we know that two-thirds to three-quarters of American Jews vote Democratic and uh, on, on a more progressive and liberal side. But our policies tend to be, at least U.S. government policies, tend to, to favor the pro-Israel right here in this country, and particularly the Christian Zionists. So that's an immovable block. But what about the other majority? How is this going to play, do you think, in terms of American support for Israel, not at the governmental level, but at the grassroots level? Look, I, it's an excellent question. I think that I think it's important to distinguish between legacy Jewish American um, organizations and the grassroots, because the grassroots is clearly more progressive than the organizations and the leadership. That's the Jewish and non-Jewish grassroots, which you know cares about Palestinian rights as part of their caring about human rights everywhere. They care about you know it's the people and planet, right? It's it's less of this you know identity politics sort of thing, which is one of the reasons why, for instance, the new Israeli Minister of Diaspora Affairs has pretty much open contempt for Jewish Americans for not engaging in the kind of identity politics that apparently we should if we're going to be good people. Um, but if you look at the, the, the major Jewish legacy organizations, um, you know, the, the election of this extremely hard right, illiberal, openly racist, openly homophobic, openly, you know, anti-Palestinian 
Um, the, the members of this government are so far beyond the pale in so many ways that the response of most of the legacy Jewish organizations and their leaders has been, it's fine, the relationship with Israel is bigger than one government, which, by the way, is almost word for word what Secretary Blinken said um, from the podium in the press conference today, which, you know, sound, effectively sounds like code for it really doesn't matter what you do, everything will be fine, we'll overlook it. I mean, Palestinians certainly hear that. Um, you know, what it's going to mean in terms of, of election politics, it, it's impossible to know. But what is easy, what, what I can say with confidence, and, you know, for those of us who've been looking at the situation on the ground for, for years and months and weeks and saying this is going to get hotter, as you take away any possibility for Palestinians to pursue any kind of justice or dignity or protection from violence in any venue, remember that it was just maybe a week ago that the Israeli um, ambassador to the UN described it as terrorism for the Palestinians to seek any sign of a, any accountability for Israel at the UN. That was terrorism. You know, as you take all of those options away, you are guaranteeing that there is going to be more tension and more conflict. And, and let's remember, there has been a nonstop last year under the previous so-called moderate government. You had, I think, the highest number of Palestinians killed in the West Bank. In, in in many, many, many years. And so far this year, we're on track to more than double that if Israel continues at the current pace. But it only hits the news when it's Israeli Jews who were killed in Jerusalem. And I should be clear, they were killed in a settlement in East Jerusalem. It's a settlement neighborhood. And it's being framed as an attack on a synagogue, which it was not. It was near a synagogue. It was not an attack on worshipers. It happened to be near a synagogue. The Israeli press is making that distinction, but it, it's gone now in the international media. But, I mean, it's going to keep getting hotter. And if the response of the U.S. government is, we care about making Palestinians' lives better, which, as Tony Blinken said again today, we want to keep the two-state alive, which is just a solution alive, which is just empty verbiage. But then most of his language, most of what he said in the press conference was leaning into normalization, Abraham Accords, rah, rah, we can all agree on that, and leaning into we all want to make sure Iran doesn't get a weapon. Those are things that, you know, th these are considered the safe places to go in the U.S.-Israel relationship. Those are safe places to go for the legacy Jewish-American organizations and for the evangelicals. And to the extent that the U.S. pretty much takes a hands-off approach while Israel is announcing that it is going to double down on collective punishment of innocent people in the West Bank, which is what it means when you say we're going to demolish the homes of the terrorist families. I try to say to Americans, if your son committed a crime and the response of the U.S. government was to demolish your home because your son committed a crime, you would say this is not a democratic government. This is not rule of law. This is this is some sort of medieval punishment which is what it is. It's, it's illegal under international law. Or when the Israeli government says, we're going to double down on settlement expansion in response to terrorist attacks, except that it was already doubling down on settlement expansion. But now that we have a terrorist attack, no one can bother us because we're saying it's in response, right? If we're not going to say anything about these things, which are antithetical, not just to a two-state solution, which seems like a fantasy at this point anyway, but to any sort of solution that allows the Palestinians in, in the Biden language any measure of justice and, and dignity and whatever. I mean, at some point it just becomes ward salad from the Biden administration on this. And, and, and Palestinians hear that and the situation on the ground is not gonna get better because of their ward salad. And, and it, 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 there's an obtuseness, a deliberate obtuseness, which ignores the fact 
that Netanyahu came into office. His One of his first statements coming into office this time was a declaration of Israel's um, inalienable and exclusive rights to all of the land of Israel defined to include the entire West Bank. So, I mean, it, there's like this head in the sand. We're not going to talk about all of these things about Israeli policy that absolutely conflict with U.S. policy and U.S. aspirations. We're going to articulate what are some sort of supposed to be, you know, self-actualizing statements about what we hope will happen. And the only things we'll actually lean into and put energy on are the things that are consensus, like we all hate Iran and we all love normalization. And prior to this visit by Secretary of State Blinken, there was a huge U.S.-Israeli military exercise. And also just yesterday, there was a drone attack on a Revolutionary Guard Corps building in Tehran, I think it was, that that some of the drones got through, and apparently they were. This was a Mossad operation. So you have a bit of a paradox, don't you, in U.S.-Israeli military operations? The U.S. is supporting Ukraine. Netanyahu is not supporting Ukraine. At the same time, he's attacking Iran with military attacks, and at the same time, of course, Iran is supplying drones to Russia to use in Ukraine. So, do you think Blinken at least made a pitch for how come you're not supporting Zelensky? I, I have no idea what he did or didn't make a pitch for in that meeting. But what's clear is that at least publicly, the Biden administration's approach on Israel is to to lean in, bear hug, no matter what is government, we all get along. We all we have small things we disagree on, but those are private. And publicly, everything continues, not just on its normal course of strong relations, but on an ever strengthening course. And, and Blinken said that we're going to continue to explore ways to strengthen our relationship. I would argue, by the way, I don't think it's a paradox. I think what you see when you see a giant military joint exercise with Israel, I mean, I think what you're seeing is what the Biden administration is is absolutely, um, th th this is it. They want the world to see this. The point is that we are standing, no Republican, no one stands closer to Israel than we do. And if there are issues, these issues in no way mean that we're standing an inch farther away, whether it is defending Israel at the UN by declaring Palestinian actions to be unacceptable. And I don't think they use the word terrorist. They definitely used, you know, they delegitimize them. Or, or it is standing with Israel against Iran and not making a fuss when Israel sends drones to, to bomb something and what really are arguably, whether you like it or not, whether you like what they did or not, it's effectively an act of war. Um, you know, it's it's not a paradox. It, it, this is Netanyahu, who learned in the Obama era for sure that he pretty much can do whatever he wants. And uh, the U.S. the U.S. government, the White House, either will stand with him or if it tries to stand against him at all, he will use Congress to push them back. But just in closing, I think it was on the last day that that Obama was in office, he invited a number of the press in for a sort of loose discussion on what concerns him in the future. And he, he said that Putinism concerns him in the future, and he named uh, Mohammed bin Salman and Netanyahu as, as followers of Putinism. And Putinism has run amok in Ukraine, and that's what I don't understand. Is I, mean, I, I think the Israeli people actually support, and the majority do support, Zelensky, uh, who needs to say Jewish, but on the other hand, uh, Netanyahu seems to be much friendlier to Putin. I mean, I, I, I think it's I think it's more complex than where people's sympathies lie. But 
the bottom line for Israel, they have made a strategic decision on what is the most effective course that they can ply when it comes to to Ukraine. It's seeking as little conflict as possible with Putin and allies on that side while trying to not antagonize excessively the United States and others who, who are standing with Zelensky. And so far, you know, they, they, they've gotten some, criticize, some criticism for it, but, but by and large, they're getting away with it. And that's, you know, their bottom line is we will look after our national interest and we have decided that our national interest is not aligned with yours or that you're right. wrong. <laughs> right. But we do everything that they want and they don't do anything that we want. Yes, but that's not new. <laughs> Right. That, that, right. Well, that, it's not a good deal. That was... it, it's not new, and certainly it's not new with, with Netanyahu in the post-Obama era. Before, before Obama, before the Obama-Netanyahu kerfuffle, it was an article of faith that while the U.S. and an Israeli government might disagree, and the U.S. might even criticize an Israeli government at the U.N. back before Obama without people accusing them of being you know, traitors to Israel and the Jewish people, I mean— the, the, it was an article of faith that no Israeli prime minister could afford to be in direct conflict with the White House. And we had the, the example of Shamir, who got into a you know, direct battle with Bush, and it cost him, the, it arguably cost him the next election. The argument was that no matter how far you could go, there had to at least be some sense of, of, of good feeling and that you're not treating the, the president with contempt. That changed. You know, Bibi treated Obama for eight years with outright contempt. He rolled a bus back and forth over him, and he not only got away with it, he was rewarded handsomely for it, and he crowned himself, you know, king of Israel. And then the Biden administration, President Biden and the people around him, the, the lesson they appear to have learned from that incredibly painful experience of watching Netanyahu treat the elected president of the United States with open contempt for eight years was, you better not get on Bibi's bad side. Let's not, let's not fight with him at all. I mean, and, and maybe they're right, because if you're not going to if you're going to stand up to a bully, you better mean it and actually stand up all the way, which is sort of what Obama learned. If you stand up to a bully and don't don't actually plan to win, you're just going to get bullied harder. So they've just decided to not stand up to the bully. And here we are. Well, Laura Friedman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Lara Friedman, who's the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Previously, she was the director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now. And before that, she was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, settlements and Jerusalem and the role of the U.S. Congress. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to whether the recently arrested top FBI counterintelligence agent in New York was at the center of two contradictory but highly consequential events that tipped the scales in 2016 to elect Donald Trump. Russia with love I fly to you 
much wiser since my goodbye to you. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Will Bunch, who's an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who blogs at Attitude, that's A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D dot com. He's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream, and most recently, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. And his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer is The New York Times Should Tell Readers Whether It Helped Crooked FBI Agents Get Trump Elected in 2016. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Bunch. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, uh, Will. And of course, we don't know the extent of Charles McGonagall's, the former special agent in charge of FBI's counterintelligence division in New York, the extent to which she was engaged in espionage, she's been charged with money laundering, etc. But the fact that he was on a Russian oligarch's payroll, he was getting money from the Albanians who always worked with Russian intelligence, etc., makes it incredibly suspicious. And I've been looking into it, particularly into what the extent to which McGonagall was a part of the FBI clique in the New York office that were involved with Giuliani, who has been alleged on many on many occasions, threatened to leak the story about uh, yeah. Anthony Weiner's laptop, right. which then caused Comey to go public, and Hillary Clinton claims that cost her the election. So we know that much, and we haven't got to the real smoking gun whether McGonagall did that at the behest of the of the, his Russian paymasters and handlers, if that's the case. But concurrent with that. There is this story that was published by the New York Times on the critical days around which we're talking. This was October the 31st of 2016, citing unnamed intelligence sources. It was uh, headlined, Investigating Donald Trump, FBI Sees No Clear Link to Russia. So that had a huge effect as well. And what do we know about McGonagall's fingerprints on that New York Times story. Well, you'd, you'd have to think that McGonagall would be a candidate to have been a source on that story because, um, you know, the Times reporters who wrote that, Eric Lichtblau and Stephen Lee Myers, were clearly talking to people in counterintelligence. And there were a few people bigger in the counterintelligence world at that time than Charles McGonagall. You know, he was he was a major player in the D.C. office. And then... At this critical time in early October 2016, at the, during the peak of the presidential campaign, Comey switched him into the New York office to head the, head the counterintelligence team in, in New York. And New, in New York is basically the capital of counterintelligence in, in, in America, right? So, so um, it's easy to imagine he could have been a source. And, and you know, in my, in my column yesterday, I, I focused heavily on the Times and it's handling of these stories because, well, for, for several reasons. One is, as you mentioned in your intro, I mean, they were so critical in, in the outcome of, of the election. Uh, uh, Nate Silver, who I know he's controversial, but he certainly is one of the nation's top expert on polling data and how to use it. And he, he looked at the numbers right after the 2016 election and estimated that 
Comey's disclosure about uh, Anthony Anthony Weiner's laptop and Hillary's emails, which I can't stress this enough, was was a complete nothing burger. I mean, there was nothing there. As it came out a few days later, after after the New York Times had devoted almost all of its front page one day and a bunch of other stories uh, to it. Um, uh, so Nate Silver said that cost Clinton as much as three or four percentage points, but he said a minimum of one percentage point and, and one percentage point swing would have given Hillary Clinton Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, and she would have won the election. So, I mean, this, this was decisive. And um, uh, as, as you mentioned, it doesn't get nearly as much attention because in a way it's kind of the like Sherlock Holmes's dog that didn't bark. But um, that, that story on October 21st that said investigating Donald Trump FBI sees no clear Russia links, which I mean, I mean, think about it on his face. We know now that was preposterous in a couple ways. You know, one one way is that uh, there were numerous links, including dozens of documented meetings between people with with Team Trump and and, and Russia, uh, you know, I- interested players in Russia. And uh, also that article made a key point that Whatever, whatever election meddling Russia might have been up to, it wasn't with the goal of helping Trump win the election. And just months, a few months later, the U.S. intelligence community came out with the exact opposite finding. And, and, so, did, and so eventually did the Senate Intelligence Committee at a time, by the way, that it was run by Republicans. So um, the story was just wrong. So that's why I think these questions, who... who who was giving who was giving the Times this information? We you know, we know like you said, we know Rudy Giuliani was bragging about his sources in the FBI office there and and that there were and he said two days before the Comey letter about Hillary's emails that a big surprise was coming. So clearly he'd been tipped off and, and there was concern that he or somebody else, like you said, would go public if Comey didn't. We know that Comey basically thought that the New York office was a rogue operation, that that there were agents in there who seemed to be pro-Trump. And the proof is in the pudding, you know, in uh, both in the email leak, which predictably was overplayed by the mainstream media, and and also by these sources who deliberately, it seems, misled the New York Times on the extent of of Trump's ties to Russia. So I, I think... I think this all still matters. I think this all should be investigated. I think I think the New York Times certainly owes its readers an investigation into what went wrong with these stories. They've never they've never apologized for this coverage. They've never they've never gone back and and did any kind of public audit on how they were misled on these on these big stories. And I I think they owe that to their readers. Well, it's pretty clear that uh, Dean Baquet overrode the reporters on the story. So I know you've reached out to the reporters on the story. So at some point or other, we got to find out who Dean Paquette uh, talked to and why he overrode the reporters. But the real point which you make in your article, Will, is the contrast between the nothing burger of Clinton's emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop, which Comey went public about and then, uh, what, eight days later has said, no, there's nothing there. That did an enormous amount of damage but at the same time, in contrast, the real evidence about Russia's interference on Trump's behalf 
was be, being suppressed yeah. by the I, major newspaper a, in the country. It was a double-edged sword, right? They right. they it's, pumped it's up amazing. The story, they pumped and, up the story that was a non that was false, and they tamped down the story that was true. And it and, could have been and, the guy the that York, did both of those or was involved in both of those could well have been working with for the Russians. That's the shoe that hasn't dropped yet. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, we know we know that. You know, we we know. I mean, obviously, the FBI has to prove these charges in court. But you know, based on these allegations, you know, we we certainly have strong reason to believe that um, McGonagall was a crooked player who needed needed money. Um, uh, you know, he had a he had a mistress and a lifestyle he was trying to keep up, uh, according to uh, according to the Insider, uh, which had a big story over the weekend, and. You know, we know that he had these connections that eventually at some point got him to work for Oleg Deripaska, who is this Russian oligarch who is involved. You know, his name turns up in everything again and again. You know, he's the guy who had a business relationship with Paul Manafort, who mysteriously became Trump's campaign manager in 2016 and who uh, famously gave gave key polling data about the campaign to a Russian agent who also was part of this web of intrigue with, with uh, Duripaska. Uh, so we know that was going on in 2016. You know, uh, Duripaska even has ties to Mitch McConnell. He was going to build a plant in, uh, in Mitch McConnell's home state after, after McConnell helped in the Senate to get sanctions lifted on him. So, you know, the, well, well, the thing that you point out as well in the article, Will Bunch, is that the same Mitch McConnell, who during that critical fall period in 2016, refused to sign a bipartisan statement warning about Russian election interference. Now, that was key that Obama tried to get the leaders of both the Senate and, and the House, Republicans and Democrat leaders, on board. And it didn't happen. Now, why he, why Obama didn't go public with what he knew is just I th- also, but he, he obviously wanted to do yeah. it on a bipartisan basis. But what Obama knew was so concrete, as opposed to the Steele dossier and the other, other stuff that we're talking about here, the CIA had a guy inside the Kremlin who was in and out of Putin's office. They exfiltrated him because as soon as Trump got the nomination, the guy said, you got to get me out. I don't trust Trump. He'll spill the beans on me, which is perfectly reasonable. So they exfiltrated this guy. He ends up in a safe house uh, in Virginia. And then people inside the House Intelligence Committee of of Devin Nunez, Cash Patel and those characters, somebody leaked this guy's existence to CNN and the camera showed up and the guy had to be put into witness protection. Yeah. He was never able to testify. So in other words, there was really inescapable evidence from the inside the Kremlin itself that Putin and the Russians were interfering to help Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. And Obama obviously presented that information to McConnell, who still didn't want to go public. So it's this exists to this day. Kevin McCarthy said a while back, I swear to God that Trump and Dana Rohrabacher are, are on Putin's payroll. That's this right. is the same guy that's now suppressing evidence and, yeah, and, and, and saying and the whole thing is a hoax. Yeah, and, and don't forget, 
um, you know, in, in, in the grand game, Putin's goal all along has been to take over and absorb Ukraine, right? I mean, um, uh, I mean, Ukraine and his meddling in Ukraine is where Putin and his spies perfected some of the techniques that they then used to try and interfere in the U.S. election. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, the, you know, these dealings that they had with Paul Manafort or, you know, with some of these other Trump insiders, they were trying to, you know, pitch these, quote, peace deals, unquote, with Ukraine, which really would have given Putin power over Ukraine. That was the, that was kind of the flip side of what was, you know, this election interference. That's, you know, why, why, why was Putin interfering in the election? He wanted America to help him with this Ukraine thing. And, you know, it was only when Trump was finally out of the White House and Joe Biden was in there that finally, as a last straw, he just invaded the country because, uh, you know, his, his subterfuge efforts, uh, which partly involved the United States, weren't, weren't working. So, so this is all very relevant to the most important issue right now in 2023, which is, you know, the war in Ukraine and, and, uh, and you know, and how that affects the global situation. I mean, right. this, this but, is but, tied, tied into all of that. So, Sure, but Trump is running again. Now right. he's actually looking like he's actually running again in, in CAD yeah. rallies in South yeah. Carolina and New Hampshire over the weekend. And we know about now William Barr and Durham's bogus inquiry investigating the investigators, how completely dishonest and what a, an abuse of power that whole thing was. But there's another element that came out as well in the last few days. This character who beat up Paul Pelosi with a hammer, Dupat, he called from jail into a local Fox uh, channel in San Francisco, which is completely unethical on the part of Fox to put this guy on the air. And he was able to rant, and he basically apologized to his right-wing cohorts, saying, I'm sorry I didn't do a better job getting Nancy Pelosi and her husband, and presumably to kill them. So he apologized for not doing it, and he went on to basically say that the reason he was doing that and the reason he feels that he failed was because that of the bogus Russian Russiagate story. So you see how it's worked. It's not only worked with William Barr, but it's worked with these crazy people out there with guns who could start a civil war based upon lies that both Comey fell for and, and also for that the New York Times fell for. And those yeah. lies have to be expunged. You're absolutely right, Ian. And, 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 and that's why that gets back to the original point of why we need to find out more about this guy McGonagall and, and what he was up to. Because I think, you know, I mean, I mean, just the news of his indictment last week and the fact that he went to work for Oleg Deripaska was kind of a game changer, I think, in what we know about Russia getting its fingers into the United States. But if more about this comes out, if it turns out that he personally was involved in misleading the New York Times or other media outlets about what was really going on in the final days of the 2016 campaign, uh, or if he was taking other active measures to to um, help Russia or help Trump or help both, um, this just casts everything in a new light. Because, 
you're right. Our, you know, our failure to resolve this issue about Russian interference, you know, the fact that we basically have buried the story that of, of how important Russian interference was. And, and we've been gaslighted. And we've been gas, gaslit on that. And the flip side is that is the gaslighting has made people angry, you know, that, uh, you know, they were misled by, you know, Rachel Maddow or the media or all these people, you know, uh, uh, you know, all these liberals were out there misleading them about these, this fake story about Trump's Russia's ties. Well, it wasn't a fake story. And, and McGonagall is, is one more proof, uh, you know, of how extensive these ties were. And, um, uh, you know, and, and another part of it, I mean, you just mentioned it in passing, but that New York Times story about the, the John Durham investigation and about Attorney General Barr's involvement in pushing that as a way to, you know, counteract the Trump-Russia probe and and make it look like it was the FBI that it was the, the perpetrators of wrongdoing against Trump. When I mean, it's ironic, right? Because there was wrongdoing in the FBI, but it wasn't against Trump. It was helping Trump. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that that's the irony. But um, um, so you're right. It's 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 been a massive gaslighting. Uh, even though, even though it started in 2015 and 2016, it's still highly relevant today because we're still we're still dealing with the effects of it in so many so many different areas. You know, from from Ukraine to the attack on Paul Pelosi. There's a there's it's there's links to all of these things. Well, Will Bunch, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Will Bunch, who's an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who blogs at attitude.com. He's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders in the New American Dream, and most recently, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. And his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer is The New York Times Should Tell Readers Whether It Helped Crooked FBI Agents Get Trump Elected in 2016. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into whether getting rid of a few bad apples in the Memphis Police Scorpion Unit addresses the systemic problems of so-called elite police units and the militarization of American policing.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stuart Schrader, who's Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration and Citizenship and Associate Research Professor of Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University. His research focuses on security, policing and counterinsurgency, the entwined movement of foreign and domestic policy and urbanization. And he's the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stuart Schrader. Thanks for having me. So, Stuart, do you think that these police officers, uh, the five that have been charged with second-degree murder and now sixth today has been removed from duty, it seems as though the way that they were policing Memphis was not so much military equipment. They weren't driving around in, in armored SUVs, but their mentality, their mindset was such that they were patrolling in, in hostile territory as though they were in Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, at least I have a whiff of that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. They definitely had a very aggressive approach. Their unit was called the SCORPION unit, which is actually an acronym, stands for Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods. And in fact, these creatively named Elite uh, street crime units are, are are not something new. They've proliferated across the country, and frequently we've seen them engage in these types of extreme lawless activities, and oftentimes resulting in prosecutions of the officers involved. Um, sometimes resulting in the the cases that they create getting thrown out because of Fourth Amendment violations and other types of um, problems with the evidence they generate. So uh, I, I have to say that, of course, nobody could have predicted particularly exactly this, this horrific incident that would have happened, but it's not surprising that the Scorpion unit, um, like the street crimes unit in New York City that killed Amadou Diallo, um, like numerous other uh, units, the Gun Trace Task Force in Baltimore, where I'm based, um, these units have a tendency to um, engage in this 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 type of activity with um, somewhat predictable results, even if we can't quite predict when it's actually going to occur. Well, in terms of the crash unit that I just mentioned, more than 70 officers were implicated in planting guns and drug evidence, selling narcotics themselves, and shooting and beating people without provocation. And we're talking about the 1990s there. You know, and mm-hmm. then you had in Chicago the Special Operations Section, SOS is another group. We also saw what happened in Chicago. So this is a continuum, isn't it? What happened in Memphis and what Absolutely. kind of what kind of rethinking? I mean, it's one thing to disband in the Scorpions, but others have been disbanded before, right. and it doesn't seem that the lessons have been learned. Well, I think that. A certain type of lesson is learned, which is that if a police department and a city, uh, whether it's city council or, or the mayor, which has some authority over the police department, if they want to have a quick, uh, somewhat cosmetic solution to an apparent crime problem, they can put together one of these units. And the result is usually seizures of guns seizures of money, um, other types of contraband, 
uh, obviously narcotics, sometimes, you know, property, automobiles and so forth. Um, that is what Scorpion did. And so it, it provides some good headlines pretty quickly, oftentimes, because there are uh, voters and, and, and people in, in the media complaining about the, the, the crime rate. And so the city can do something about it quickly. But the reality is that in the process of um, seizing these guns, seizing the money, et cetera, people's rights are violated. Uh, people get brutalized. And also, in, in some cases, obviously, they get killed. So I, I do think that every police department that creates one of these units knows the risks that are that it's it's engaging in. Um, I think that oftentimes the elected officials are not so aware of the risks. They maybe are a little bit naive. Maybe they believe the claim by the police chief. No, our unit will be different, unlike all of the others that have preceded it. But in fact, um, it's quite common when you have these types of elite units, uh, quote unquote, elite units, which are given great latitude um, to engage in these kind of high intensity, high adrenaline, rapid paced operations with little concern for the Fourth Amendment. Um, we basically, you know, know what's going to happen and the likelihood that they engage in um, graft, racketeering and other types of criminal activity is is quite high because, in fact, the best officers to be recruited to these units are the ones who really have quite a, a sharp ability to think like their potential prey. In other words, the ones who are engaged in 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 the thinking like a scammer or thinking like a quote unquote criminal, these are the ones who are going to be most effective at doing this work. And certainly that was the case in in Baltimore with the Gun Trace Task Force, um, which has been um, documented beautifully in, in the book, I Got a Monster by Brandon Soderbergh and Baynard Woods, uh, showing how the um, police were, were doing, in some cases, you know, multiple illegal uh, raids uh, a night and and coming away with with money and drugs and guns um, most of which never made it into an evidence locker because that was not the goal and and the the police department mainly um, you know to the degree that the, the leaders of the police department knew about it they were mainly okay with it because the goal was getting guns off the streets first and foremost so that they they could tell um, the residents of Baltimore the the reporters asking them questions, um, are you getting guns off the street? Well, yes, the answer is that we are getting guns off the street. Um, but all of the collateral consequences were left out of the conversation until it blew up in their face. But in the case of Tyree Nichols, we still don't know why they pulled him over, what they That's were right. looking for. And we know they instantly brutalized him and pepper sprayed him and tased him. So and he turns out to be a a skateboarder with a young kid and he's almost home. He kept telling them, you know, I'm almost home. You know, when they were beating him to death, he called out for his mother. So he's not a criminal. That's know. right. All the reporting we've learned is he's a, he's a really good guy and a sweet sort of kind kind of guy that loves to be a photographer and had a kind of artistic bent. So it's just hard to understand what the hell were they looking for? Yeah. Well, I, I do think that most likely um, a fair amount of information will come out um, that will reveal both how this incident occurred and, and what the officers were, were planning to do to, to try to cover it up, which 
you know, it bears mentioning that the initial press release that came out of the Memphis Police Department about the incident gave no indication of what actually occurred. It's 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 basically a, a series of complete fabrications and lies that bears no resemblance to the reality that is now available in, in these horrific videos. So um, the story will will continue to evolve. Most likely there was um, an effort to to cover it up. And, you know, I don't really want to speculate about why he was pulled over um, be, because it's, it's very hard to know. It, it could be something, you know, like mistaken identity or, or bad information based on, um, you know, the, the license plate of his car, you know, in, it, the information in the database was wrong. There, there's, there's endless possibilities for why or he, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time um, or, or simply that it was purely predatory. Uh, it's, it's very hard to know. But given, again, the history of these types of units, any one of these potential explanations is possible or, or, or some combination of, um, you know, a, a, a mistake in terms of their their investiga investigation, uh, a combination of a mistake and a combination of, of the predatory nature through which they they operate. And, and they're they're really loose attention to um, the, the rules and guidelines that are uh, supposed to be on the books for how police are supposed to operate. Well, Stuart Schrader, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Stuart Schrader, who's Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration and Citizenship and an Associate Research Professor of Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University. His research focuses on security, policing and counterinsurgency, the entwinement of foreign and domestic policy and urbanization. And he's the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes on